Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, open our hearts and our minds by your Spirit that your Word would dwell richly within us and that you would more and more fully establish the new life you have given us in Christ, that you draw out of us faith and trust and love, and that you would lead and guide us as your people to make you known in all that we do. Bless us this day with your Spirit that we would be changed into the likeness of Christ himself. And it is through that very same Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. Rachel and I have watched most of the seasons of Poirot. Every time we find it somewhere, they take it off after a little while. But we love Poirot. We love his analytical mind. We love watching the Father Brown mysteries. We have various mystery novels that we enjoy watching. But the one thing about all of these mysteries that we so love and enjoy is the fact that it is all about a riddle that has to be unlocked. All the pieces are there. It just takes an analytical mind to study the pieces before them and to connect the dots together and to show how all this happens, whether it's a murder or some theft or some other kind of crime. Everything is there right in front of the detective. And all that detective has to do is think about it enough and the pieces will fall into place as they interview, as they go to, as they talk to, as they uncover the evidence, as they understand the situation that they find themselves in. That's what we think of most of the time, I think. When we hear the word mystery, we think of a riddle. We think of a murder, a crime that has to be unlocked and revealed to us by someone else who can take all the pieces that are there and simply put them together for us. They put the puzzle together because we can't quite do it on our own. However, when Paul speaks of a mystery this day, he's not talking about a riddle. He's not talking about a puzzle. He's talking about a revelation from God himself. He's talking about a reality that God has worked into our reality, into creation, into his plan of redemption that he has not fully revealed in the past. And it's not about Paul unlocking the mysteries of the Old Testament, discovering a Bible code in order to find this mystery. No, the Spirit of God just directly tells him what this mystery is, and suddenly he sees it all over the place in the Old Testament. That has always been there. But we were blind to it. He was blind to it. God was carefully orchestrating all of it to make it known at the right time, to open up our eyes. And with this mystery of Christ comes a secondary mystery. It comes the mystery of the church herself and her workings and her actions in this world. And so as we look at this entirety of this chapter 3, going with hopefully a 50,000 foot overview of it, because we don't have all day to talk about it, we're going to dig into this mystery and to realize what it is and how these are connected and what God is doing in Christ for us and for Paul. That he is revealing a beautiful, beautiful reality before us that we can become so familiar with that we don't understand the import of what Paul is saying. 
And so we just simply pick up with the mystery of Christ himself. Paul begins here in verse 1, just simply reminding the people that for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul, a prisoner of Christ. Not just a prisoner of Christ, but a literal prisoner of Rome. When he was writing this letter, Paul had traveled to Rome in order to appeal to Caesar. And now he was sitting in prison waiting for that day to come. Now, it wasn't a dark, under-the-ground dungeon or anything. It was simply house arrest. But nonetheless, all of his freedoms as a Roman citizen had been curtailed, and he was required to stay in this house. People could come and go. He could send out letters. People could send him letters. But he was still under house arrest and could not just move about. But Paul, being Paul, flips the idea of his imprisonment on its head. Instead of being a prisoner of Rome... Under lock and key, he himself is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He is under the lordship of Christ. He is imprisoned to Christ himself and cannot move about freely. He cannot move according to his own will. He can only move according to the will of Christ, to the will of the Father working through Christ in him and bringing it all together with his own apostleship that he is a prisoner of Christ. He has been made an apostle for the Gentiles on behalf of the Gentiles, to make known to them the stewardship of God's grace, he goes on to say in chapter in verse 2. He has been given a stewardship. He has been giving a trust from God of his grace. And he is to roll that grace out before the people, before the Gentiles. He is to pour that grace out. He doesn't hoard the stewardship to himself. If he had, then he would have failed in that stewardship. But he pours it out before the people and gives it to them. And he has revealed to these Ephesians how that mystery was made known to him by revelation. And he has written about it briefly, he says, and that mystery was revealed in chapter 2. In verses 11 through 22, he reveals the beautiful mystery of what is happening in Christ's redemption, a layer that we don't often think about. We get caught up in thinking about the individual aspects of our salvation, that we each are individually brought before God the Father through the forgiveness of our sins and the, and the work of the Spirit in us. But there is more to the salvation and redemption of Jesus than just me as an individual or you as an individual being forgiven. There's a depth here that goes beyond our wildest understandings that God in Christ has made one new people, one new man out of Gentiles and Jews. That through Christ, he brings these two warring peoples together into one family before himself. Yes, it is by the forgiveness of their individual sins, but it is also by the fact that God deals with sin itself as a hostile reality against the creation in Christ. And he makes Christ the peace between us and God. Between Jews and Gentiles, the chosen people of God and the rejected people of God. That God chose to work through Abraham and his children and his descendants and Israel herself. He chose to work through a particular people group in order that through that people group, this revelation would be made known. This union of two peoples together, brought together in the peace of Christ, brought together in peace before the Father, reconciled through the cross, killing the hostility that exists between the peoples of God, the people that he has called to be his own. That mystery is Christ himself, because it can't happen without Christ himself. God can't willy-nilly ignore our sins he is a holy and just god he has created this creation to work in a certain way 
And when the creation spun off against him, he began working to bring creation itself, to bring all the people of creation and creation, space, the universe, everything back under his full and complete loving authority. When he could have just burned it all down and started over, he instead chose to work through creation to create a redemption that unites all things in Christ, that unites all things to the Father through Christ by the indwelling of the Spirit and Christ sharing our human nature. This mystery has been revealed to Paul and not just to Paul. Paul wasn't the only one to gain this insight of the mystery of Christ, of the Gentiles being brought into the people of God, not to become Jews according to the Mosaic Covenant, but to become believers in Christ, to become a new kind of believer, to become Christians. This was revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit himself too. Not just St. Paul, but all of the apostles were given this revelation, this reality, this understanding of God's redemption given to us. Think back to Acts chapter 10. Cornelius sends a servant, sends one of his bondservants, one of his slaves to St. Saint Peter, desiring for him to come and tell him, to interpret a vision that he has received that said, go find this man named Peter and to bring to him whatever word it is that the Lord had given to him to reveal to Cornelius. And Paul, do Peter doesn't want to go. Peter's hesitant. And just as this servant is about to arrive, God gives Peter that vision of the sheep being let down with all the clean and unclean animals on it. And God tells him to eat, to partake of all that God has given to him. And Peter doesn't want to do it because he says, how can I eat something that's unclean? And God tells him not to call unclean what he has made clean. That creation has been made pure and clean by the work of Christ and that the Gentiles have been called into the fold of the true Israel. That we have been united and brought together. And this sprung forth by the Spirit to the apostles. God revealed it to a group of people that he had specifically chosen to go out into the world to make it known. And the deeper mystery of Jew and Gentile coming together means that Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are co-heirs in Christ with the Jews to receive the redemption, to receive the mysteries, to receive the graces of being God's people, to receive the transformation that comes with being one with God through Jesus Christ. The Gentiles have been brought in and made part of true Israel, just as the Jews have been brought in and made part of true Israel in Christ himself. Christ fulfilled and completed all that was the Mosaic Covenant in order that the new covenant would be established through Christ's sacrifice and resurrection and ascension, that the new covenant would be poured out upon this world to call forth all of us into the body of Christ to call us by faith into the body of Christ. And of this gospel, Paul says in verse 7, I was made a minister by the gift of God's grace. Though he was the very least of all the saints, he continually admits he has been called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in all ages by God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And here we come to this mystery of the church that Paul brings up. 
First, there is the mystery of Christ and the union of Jew and Gentile in Christ together to become equal heirs of the riches and the treasures that God has given to us in Christ. And now, mysteriously, with the preaching of this gospel, the revelation of the mystery that has been hidden for ages, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, out of the mystery of Christ comes the church, his bride, his people. Through the church, the manifold wisdom is made known, the wisdom of God, of salvation, of redemption, of how to live within this world, of how to walk before the Father in faithfulness and truthfulness. The manifold wisdom of God is meant to go out through the church, by the church, the church together reveals the manifold wisdom of God. And where is this place, this church? Where is the church made manifest mostly, most knowingly? In her very worship. As Paul will go on to say, the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him, that we as the church come before the Father to worship. We have access we have an opportunity to draw near to the Father through Jesus. We come together to worship as the people of God with confidence because of faith in Jesus. We get to come to the Father to pray, to praise, to hear His Word read and understood and explained, to dwell within His Word, to receive His sacraments, here, the church reveals the manifold wisdom of God that God is redeeming creation and calling all of creation back to himself. As the church gathers in worship, it reveals that we in creation itself was made to know God. The church reveals the wisdom of God and salvation for this broken creation. So much so that the wisdom is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that the angels and the demons are seeing the church worship and they are learning more about the plan of God for salvation. They are being taught by us that those rulers and authorities that stand behind the rulers and authorities that we know in this world, they see the church worship and they learn more of who God is. They learn more of what God is doing. They learn that God is at work in His people and calling them forward in this mystery. This mystery of Christ to bring all peoples into Christ, to call people into this promise, into the body of Christ, into His church, to grow the church, to build the church, and then to lead the church more and more into worship. We have been called toward worship always. And in Paul's desire for the church in Ephesus to worship, to draw near with boldness and confidence, to be able to look to the Father to be at work, he says, don't lose heart over what suffering, what suffering I am going through. My suffering is, in fact, for your glory. Paul's suffering on behalf of Christ, being a prisoner of Christ, is pushing the Ephesians more and more forward to know Christ, to not look at Paul but to look to the message of the hope of the gospel that Paul has preached. 
That's what Paul's meaning here. Don't lose heart over my sufferings. My sufferings keep me away from you so that you will know Christ more fully. My sufferings keep you from putting me on a pedestal. It keeps you looking at Christ. It keeps you drawing near to the Father through Christ, which is your glory. You will receive the glory of God by looking to Christ, not to me, Paul says. Let me suffer for your sake so that you will know Jesus. That is what is happening for Paul, and that's what he's wanting to bring forward to the people. But even more so with the mystery of the church, Paul does something. After he speaks of this mystery of Christ and the mystery of church, he turns to prayer immediately. He brings about, I think, something of a mystery when it comes to prayer. I bow my knees before the Father, Paul says in verse 14, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his mercy he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul desires for the people of Ephesus, the Christians, the believers, to be strengthened, not only as individuals, but as the church. He wants them to be strengthened through the power of His Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in their inner being that, that God has given the Spirit to us to change us, to renew us, to transform us, to ever increase our faith so that Christ Himself would dwell in our hearts through faith. That mysteriously, as the Spirit works in us, Christ Himself comes to dwell within. He dwells in our hearts through faith. And His dwelling drives us forward in love, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Here there's an ambiguity, I think, on purpose from Paul, that there's a double-sided love here. That on one hand, we are rooted and grounded in the love that comes from God for us, that as Christ dwells in us through faith, we know the love of God more and more deeply, the love that God pours upon His people and upon each and every one of us. And then as we are rooted and grounded in that love that flows from God, what happens when something is rooted? It starts growing. That that love of God which is in us, that love that comes from God, will then shoot forth out of us, grow up out of us in a love that pours out to those around us. That we as the church are rooted in Christ in our worship, and we thus are rooted in His love, and thus will grow as the church to reach out to reveal this love of God for creation, for people, through Christ. That we may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer here is for the strengthening and renewal of the people and the church herself. One Lutheran commentator speaking of the strengthening that, Christ, that Paul is praying for is that St. Paul's ideas of a Christian was not that he should have just enough religion to admit himself to heaven. Paul desired to see constant increase of spiritual life in his converts. So he doesn't want us just to know enough to get into heaven. He wants us to be radically transformed and changed in every aspect of our lives. So much so that Luther earlier said in his small catechism, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me by his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. It is all of Christ, and Paul prays for that for the individuals in Ephesus and for the church herself. That the way that we grow is not by going out on our own, 
and taking up the Bible and reading it by ourselves every day. That's not the only way that we grow. If we become so individualistic that we abandon the church herself, then we lose out the reality of what is to happen to us. We become lone rangers. We act like we can just go anywhere and just worship God on my own, and that's all that matters. But that's not what Paul desires for the church in Ephesus, not to be a bunch of individuals who just go off on their own doing their own thing, but to be a people who are bound together in worship, who are bound together in the love of Christ, who are united to one another through Christ himself. That by being brought into the body of Christ, the church herself, they are bound up with one another to be strengthened in their inner being with one another, that Christ would dwell in each of them through faith. Paul's desire is for the individuals to recognize that they are part of a greater whole. They are not the whole in and of themselves, but together they become the body of Christ here on earth. But on the flip side of that reality, it's not just going to church on Sunday that makes a difference. If you have no inner faith, if you have no love of Christ, going to church every Sunday just for the ritual and the routine is not going to do anything for you. You'll hear the word and I trust the spirit to be at work through his word and through his liturgy, through the singing of the songs. But if there's not a glimmer of faith to grab hold personally in that corporate worship, then you're just as lost as the person who never shows up at church and believes that it's all about them and their individualistic relationship with the Father through Jesus. That you become so concerned with the corporate side that you neglect that personally you are called into faith. Personally, you're called to pray. Personally, you're called to know and understand who you are in Christ. Now, who you are in Christ is known by being in and with the church being united to the church, being built up by the church. And Paul is desiring that we would all know that love of Christ as the church that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, that God himself in Christ is dwelling fully in us. There's a mystery there, the fullness of Christ dwelling in us and thus the fullness of God dwelling in us. There are so many mysteries here that Paul is revealing to us that all turns on that key of Christ, that key that Christ unites the Gentiles and the Jews together into a new body of believers that's filled with the Spirit and that are sent out as the people, that are sent out to live their lives and the vocations and the callings and the places that God has called each and every one of us to do, that as we gather every week, how do we end our service? We go out being sent into the world. We go out in the power of the Spirit to share the gospel of peace. In our post-communion collect, it is focused on the calling that God has sent us out to do. Here in this corporate worship together, we are strengthened as the body of Christ and are sent out to make known in each of our individual vocations, in each of our callings, in the ways that Christ is working in us to make known the beauty and the transformation of Christ. We are to make known Jesus through all of our actions, which means when we don't make him known, when we screw up at work, when we screw up in our families and our friendships, we admit it and confess it and, and say, I have sinned. I have done wrong to you. 
It's ironic that when we tell people about our sin that we've committed against them, we are revealing Jesus to them because that's a transformation that Jesus has worked in us. That prior to Jesus working that transformation, why would we ever confess our sin and admit that we need forgiveness before someone? But Jesus changes our hearts. He changes our inner being. He creates a new inner being that is filled with Christ himself so that we can have new relationships, that we can have vocations that are brought under the authority of Christ. And through our actions, through our consistency, through our faithfulness, make Jesus known. And then we return back to this body of believers, week in and week out, day in and day out in some places, to be refreshed, to be renewed, to be built up, and to reveal that wisdom of salvation by our worship together. And so through Christ and his mystery of union with us and union of individuals together, of union of two warring peoples together, he reveals the mystery of the church and our calling to make known that wisdom before all the world, that we are called into relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And we are united perfectly and fully and completely that we would dwell with him and make him known through our worship together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.